Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's Dead Pundit Society. This is the A-side for this week, and it features an amazing chat with Sam Gendon. We went about two hours on this discussion, and we talked about damn near everything related to socialist politics, organizing, uh, the importance of the kind of inside-outside democratic socialist strategy that I've talked about with so many other guests, and that is not for nothing. Because most of you know, Sam Gindin is the co-author with Leo Panich on just about everything for the past 10 years, but most explicitly their little black book that we're featuring for the DPS Working Class Heroes Tier Reading Club that's going to be starting next month. That book is called The Socialist Challenge Today, and it talks about some of the pitfalls of the social democratic trap and how to transcend them to develop a robust democratic socialist agenda for the 21st century. And um, he has a lot of insight and a lot of wisdom to pass along, and I'm excited to bring you all this interview today. Just a couple quick things before we get started. The Weekly Rundown is underway. People are joining at the Weekly Rundown tier, and uh, very excited about that. Last week's rundown was the very first one, and I think it was a success in my own personal estimation, but I've got a lot of really great feedback from people on that. It is a news and views show from a socialist perspective. We talk about some of the underreported topics from the week, and we give a little bit of a socialist spin on the overreported topics, perhaps you might say. We had a B-side come out as well earlier this week featuring Matt Huber. We talked about the politics of a Green New Deal, and that's a really great chat. So all the patrons this week, you're getting a lot of content. If you're not a patron, you're really missing out. So head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits. Look over the various uh, reward tiers. Figure out how much you can afford to contribute and and what kind of rewards you would like to receive. $5 will give you access to our B-sides. $10 will give you access to the B-sides and the weekly rundown. And for $15 or more per month, you will have access to the Working Class Heroes tier. That is our book club that we're going to be running every other month. And those people, needless to say, will also get access to the B-sides and the rundown. That is the tier for people who are donating one hour's worth of their wage per month to keep our operations thriving into the new year. And uh, if you don't make $15 an hour, shoot me a message and I'll be sure that you get included on that book club. All right, enough of the Patreon pitch for this week. Let's bring you our two-hour, two hours of power chat with Sam Gindin, everybody. Enjoy. Joining me on the line is Sam Gindin. Sam was the research director of the Canadian Auto Workers from 1974 to 2000, and he has an extensive list of credits as both author and co-author with previous guest of DPS, Leo Panich. Sam Gannon, thanks so much for joining us on Dead Punnett Society. Great to be here. So as most people in our audience will know, for sure, your co-author and lifelong friend, Leo Panich, has been 
on the Dead Planet Society quite a few times now. And I've been looking for an apt opportunity to have you on as well. And uh, I think we finally found it. So thanks so much for joining us. Tell the audience a little bit about you and your long career as a socialist and labor organizer. You have been at it uh, for 50 some odd years and you have an extensive resume under your belt. A lot of wisdom to share from ages long ago, predating neoliberalism even, which is a much longer history than many of the millennials in our audience. So tell us a little bit about how you got uh, involved in the socialist movement and the labor movement as well. I was going to school in uh, Madison, Wisconsin in the 70s. I'm, I'm Canadian, but uh, I went down this, in, the, in the States to go to school. Uh, it was the 60s, so that had an enormous influence on, uh, on everything. Um, and I wasn't interested in getting uh, – I wasn't interested in being an academic. I didn't finish my doctorate, uh, and I applied for a job and got a job uh, in Canada with the Canadian auto workers to start the research department here. And I was there for 27 years. I retired around the turn of the century uh, and uh, did a course at York, uh, which was partly so that Leo and I could be together and think about uh, the book we're doing. And partly because it was exciting. Uh, I had an opportunity to teach, to do a seminar that included uh, not just uh, students, but uh, uh, worker activists and workers working in engine plants, steel plants, auto assembly plants. Uh, and that was fun because the students loved talking to the workers, even challenging them on uh, why they were so consumerist. And the uh, workers loved listening to this, what they considered utopian responses <laughs> from the workers. But they actually liked it. They liked they liked hearing this. And so they had wonderful exchanges. and. Uh, they often uh, went back to the bar to continue discussing and or, or arguing. So that was great. So as I sort of mentioned earlier in, in the uh, opening of this interview, you and Leo Panich have a, a long, long relationship. It's my understanding that you two came to know each other when you were 18 or 19 years old. Is that right? Yeah, that's about right. So, so uh, I, I think it's safe to say that the, the two of you have certainly, if not the most infamous, but certainly the longest lasting working relationship going further than, than Marx and Engels, further than Hart and Negri, further than, uh, I don't know, who else? Who, who are some of the other legendary duos in the socialist yeah. uh, writing relationship here? Never, never, never really thought that our great contribution was our longevity. <laughs> uh, no, one of the things I found really useful when I was uh, – Working in the union, Leo and I stayed in touch all the time, even if he was in London and I was in Madison or wherever we were. And uh, we'd have really good debates when we got together, but we always seemed to be heading in the same direction. And I think we always had this notion that one day when I left the union and uh, he had some time, we'd actually write a book together. But when I was in the union, what was so valuable to me is it's easy to get stuck in the union and have that be your only world. Uh, Leo in particular, but also Greg Albo. We used to meet and they would challenge me. Why, why isn't the union trying this? Or why isn't it doing this? Or you're getting conservative. And I found those kinds of challenges really helpful. Some people re in the union movements resent outsiders coming and telling them what to do. But I, I think it's important that uh, intellectuals not only try to support the labor movement, but actually challenge it to be better. 
Right. Well said. And you, that uh, that desire to work together and collaborate with Leo came to fruition in your the Making of Global Capitalism, which appeared in 2012, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. It uh, won the Deutscher Prize uh, under much accolades. It's been very influential to uh, the the thought process of this podcast for sure. And so we wanted to bring you on to talk about some of the themes more explicitly. So let's dive into those right now. Being that you have a career in the labor movement and you find yourself in Ontario, Canada right now, I think it's uh, as good a place as any to start with the news that broke a few weeks ago that General Motors would be shutting down a series of plants in North America. And one of those that would hit the hardest, perhaps, was in Oshawa, which is a little backwater outside of Toronto. And uh, that, that hit pretty hard, particularly with Premier Ford and his promise that Ontario is in business. It seems to me, as, as has been said before, I'm not original in saying this, but it seems to me that GM somehow missed the billboard on the way into Ontario from Niagara, uh, that, yeah. that Ontario is indeed open for business, and they shut down the plant and fired the workers anyway. So what's going on there? Um, we have a lot of uh, balls in the air. We've got uh, this right-wing populism that certainly uh, can't live up to its haughty, heady claims. Trump has failed to bring back the jobs. Uh, as he's promised in his campaign, and yet uh, workers are being laid off. Uh, what do you make of all of this? It might be useful for me to give just a quick background on Oshawa. Uh, Oshawa, used, Oshawa actually used to be the largest auto complex in uh, North America in the 70s. It, it, it was making uh, 3,000 vehicles a day in uh, two car plants and a truck plant. It had an axle plant, a radiator plant. It was making batteries. It was making radios, and that's not including all the component plants. And that little backwater community had 23,000 workers uh, at the end of the 70s. Uh, it had 3,000 before this latest announcement. So 85% of the workforce was already gone. Um, and the significance of Ottawa was that that plant uh, was either first or second in productivity and quality uh, for most of that period, uh, that uh, series of plants. So workers have done everything you would, they're told they have to do in terms of productivity, quality. The profits were high in, in, in uh, Oshawa for GM. Uh, at one point, GM actually stopped producing information on profits in Canada because they were getting embarrassing about how high they were. And then the place closes anyways. And so the point is to, you know, there's a lesson to be learned here by workers. There's something wrong with the system. It doesn't matter what you do. You're always vulnerable under capitalism. You know, that was one of the points about neoliberalism. Whatever you gained in the past, it was always going to be temporary. Uh, and uh, you had to take that into consideration. So I, I think what's going on right now in a bigger sense is that there have been frustrations all through neoliberalism because there, it was taking away things that people had won before. And uh, people accommodated to those frustrations. They, they had actually won important things in the 50s and 60s, so they wanted to hang on to them, and they were ready. After those initial reactions about, we don't want things taken away, they began to actually accommodate the concessions in order to hang on to the things they'd won before. Uh, you know, they'd uh, worked longer hours, uh, more members of the family were working, women moved from part-time work to working in full-time jobs, kids stayed home longer and tried to save up money. People canceled their vacations so that they could do some other things, maintain their consumption in other ways, and they went into debt, of course. So there were all kinds of things happening over this period. One thing it meant was that people were putting more pressure on themselves. The other thing was, in a sense, they were 
helping to reproduce neoliberalism because they were trying to respond to this by finding individual solutions, including cuts in taxes as a kind of a wage increase. So you have this long period up to the crisis of 2008 where there are things wrong, and the question is, how come people aren't angrier? And neither the unions nor social democratic parties or liberal parties could answer that. You know, either they themselves accommodated to capitalism, this is the way the world is, you just have to be realistic. Uh, Unions for a long time just thought that we're going through a rough patch, things will be okay again. Some union leaders just got comfortable with expectations being lowered. It made their job easier. Some were just overwhelmed. But then you see this populist reaction to this, this populist expression uh, and articulation of these frustrations, and people did jump on it. Now Now, you have to be careful about defining this all as a move to the right, because it also included Sanders surprising everybody with the kind of support he had. And it included Corbyn, and it included for a while Podemos, and it included for a while Syriza. So it, it was, you know, a, a relatively confused response that was, you know, be there on the left and on the right. And the right has actually been able to sustain it. But I think what we're seeing right now is the right has no plan. This isn't Hitler, you know, who, who could say, my plan is territorial expansion and getting access to resources and militarism, which will give you jobs, they don't actually have a plan. What they've been doing is mobilizing people's frustrations and channeling it uh, you know, to racism against immigrants or whatever. They don't have a plan. And the question is, well, how is that going to play out? And what you raised about the auto thing is we're kind of seeing this right now. You know, Trump uh, says, I'm going to do something about jobs in the Midwest, a lot of auto jobs, but not just auto jobs. He says, I'm going to renegotiate this free trade agreement. He does it. He announces that this is a wonderful deal. This is going to bring back jobs to the U.S. And, you know, within a matter of weeks of signing it, GM basically gives him the finger. And what GM was doing is they actually didn't announce this until the trade agreement was signed. And once the trade agreement was signed, they're basically saying there's nothing in that agreement that prevents us from doing what we want to do, which is true. So that's kind of, you know, that's kind of one measure of this happening. And the example you gave with Ford in Canada, he puts up his signs of, we're open for business. And then, you know, what you're seeing is business leaving. So there, there, there is a, a crisis here also on the side of the right in terms of what their plan is. And it's now getting expressed in concrete terms, not just that they're stupid or bumbling or that they're racists. It's completely, you know, on their own promises that aren't being delivered. The question is, well, where's this going to go? And there's two poss- you know, there's at least two possibilities. One is that they're going to double down on things, double down on uh, any signs of resistance. That's one possibility that we have to worry about civil rights and other things. Or, you know, the question is, can the left rise to this challenge? And it isn't, it isn't so clear that the left is in a position to rise to that challenge. There's all kinds of examples that are hopeful, but they're still fragmented, small. And, you know, this is the big challenge. So it sounds to me that the plane or the horizon of politics that's being exercised right now in this populist wave that you just uh, described, which is not only taking shape, you know, started in 2014, 15 with Corbyn, started in 2016 with Sanders. It's a form of kind of uh, inchoate left populism. We saw it with Podemos uh, experiments in Greece and elsewhere. 
uh, following the movement of the squares in Occupy in 2011. It's all sort of come to fruition, and it seems to be gaining a much more uh, specific and focused and sophisticated expression and a democratic socialist flavor, you might say. But it's also true to say that the right-wing populism of, say, Doug Ford, for example, in Ontario, or certainly Trump, uh, as one of the best-known expressions, the most unfortunate, most powerful expression of that thus far, has really failed to transcend the horizon of what you might call the culture wars. And I think Doug Ford uh, rode the culture wars to power in Ontario, but now his failures in the economic realm demonstrate perhaps the fact that the, the culture wars can't deliver in the realm of the, the economic plane. Mm. And I think that one thing that the, the left has to do, as you've pointed to quite rightly, and this is going to sort of transition us into the next section of our chat here, the left has to sort of hunker down and, and start thinking about material gains for real working people. And that's one thing that perhaps we might we can agree on here. Uh, one of the main topics that, that Dead Pundit Society takes up on a weekly basis, that the left needs to also transcend the culture war and start delivering the goods materially and start organizing the class. Yeah. You know, there's, uh, there's something about Ford that's important to emphasize because it's different than Trump, but I guess exactly to the question that you're raising. Uh, Ford actually had a very, very strong base amongst immigrants mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in uh, the suburbs of Toronto and in Ontario. You couldn't just kind of have this assumption that immigrants uh, are inherently going to be progressive. You know, there was an attack on illegal immigrants, but Trump really nurtured having that base amongst immigrants. And of course, you have to think, we have to think in a more sophisticated way about what that means, because you have to analyze that in class terms. You have to analyze it in terms of a lot of immigrants uh, come here. And even if things are tough, mm -hmm. it's upward <laughs> mobility for them. Uh, you have to think about what happens to the second generation of immigrants. For example, with Asian immigrants, a lot of Asian immigrants who have come to Canada came from a middle-class background, ended up doing a lot of shit work. So, you know, they themselves were really being exploited. But that middle-classness that they had meant that they really passed it on to their kids in terms of the importance of education. And they were very mobile. And, the, the, you know, the incomes of, of uh, Asians in both Canada and the United States are on average higher than the incomes of whites. So you can't have this homogeneous category of what people of color are. And it does get to the question of why thinking in terms of class is so fundamental. I mean, it's really ironic because what capital has really been saying for three or four decades now is that the issue is class, that neoliberalism is very much about changing the balance of power so that whatever corporations conceded before is gone. Adolf Reed has described neoliberalism as capitalism without a working class opposition. And that's a simple line, but it, there, there's something really, really to it. So getting to this question of, yes, the question is, so where is the left in all of this? Now, one of the interesting things about the left, one of the significant changes is that the left has actually begun to look to politics more than it did before. It used to reject thinking about the state, you know, seizing power without taking power. And that's been a change, you know, in terms of momentum in England, in terms of Podemos, and in terms of that energy that the Sanders campaign had. These are examples of a lot of people who previously would have had contempt for that kind of politics or put all their energy into single issue politics 
were actually beginning to realize that you had to think about state power. And that was an interesting phenomenon. And now the question is, well, how deeply are they thinking about it? Right. That's the movement from protest to politics that uh, you and Leo document in your latest book. And uh, just by the way, as a, on, a, on, a, on a sort of one-to-one personal note, we are actually uh, going to be discussing that book, you and Leo's latest book, and our inaugural book club we're doing here on Dead Planet Society. So uh, a lot of really valuable insights there in terms of uh, what the moment we're facing means and the kind of contradictions and pitfalls and traps that will be faced inevitably along the way. Um, so that, that movement from protest to politics is central, and we're sort of now in the midst of that transition. So I want to talk about now nine pillars uh, for this kind of movement, the, the things that we need to think about. This is, this is from a piece that you wrote, I believe back in 2015 or 2016. It appeared in Jacobin. It was titled Unmaking Global Capitalism. And that was in the wake of uh, your release of The Making of Global Capitalism. You're very much still thinking a lot and speaking and writing a lot about the centrality and the significance of states in globalization and what kind of contradictions and demands and imperatives those kinds of arrangements throw up for very serious thinking in terms of socialist transition. You, you write about nine pillars, and this I want to get through these fairly quickly, although this, this certainly could uh, comprise, uh, I don't know, the, the, the entirety of the rest of the podcast that I do for here on out, uh, perhaps. The, the, stake, the scope is very broad. But number one, we've already talked about this quite a bit. Number one, you write, neoliberalism is just capitalism getting its groove back. It's the post-war golden age. That's the aberration, and there's no going back. So speak to this a little bit. One of the the hobby horses of the Keynesians, the neo-Keynesians, and many progressives who have taken up their analysis, their methodology, their way of looking at economic history, is their belief that they want to sort of bring back Glass-Steagall, bring back some of the protections that were afforded by the Keynesian system in the post-war settlement put finance, quote unquote, back in its box, right? That's the dream. And unfortunately, uh, Bernie Sanders has fallen under this sway quite a bit as his many of his economic advisors have uh, what I, I think you and I both would say is a wrong-handed understanding of finance and, and, and the role of neoliberalism and the kind of fleeting aberrational quality <laughs> of the post-war golden age. So, so talk to us a little bit about that and what, what the implications are for uh, socialist organizing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess on all these issues, um, you know, this call to go back to the 50s and 60s, you know, at least it is a call that's based on recognizing there's a problem in what we have now. And it's kind of part of this left reemerging. And it's really fundamental to push on rethinking all these things. I mean, we need a lot of rethinking if this left that is emerging is actually going to go someplace. So the point about the history of the 50s and 60s, you know, and people who want to see labor militancy again, is that uh, that period of the 50s and 60s was a unique historical moment. For one thing, workers were strong, but there's also a question always when you come out of something like a war, like the Second World War, how do you buy the legitimacy of workers? And that was crucial for the American empire in a couple of ways. One was that uh, in order to actually be able to make the empire and in order to get workers to accept the restructuring that this would mean, for example, opening up your markets, uh, you had to have a way of also legitimating it to workers. 
And the legitimate the legitimacy revolved around getting people, the workers, to think in terms of growth rather than distribution. In other words, to forget about class and think about partnership. And and dealing with the American working class was basic because this was going to be the model to convince everybody. Uh, one of the examples we used when we were writing the book was British workers being brought over to the United States to see how the plants were working and how efficient and how effective and how productive they were. But while they were in the United States, uh, when they, they went shopping, they went to whatever malls there were around at the time. And that side effect of going shopping probably affected them more than anything else. They got this vision of American consumerism that they could log into too. So there was this push for consumerism. So what happens is, and this is the contradiction of Keynesianism, is that if you actually make workers more secure in a class society, and if you allow their expectations to rise, you're going to create a problem for capital. They're actually going to say, I'm not taking the shit in the plant. And they're going to be asking for more as productivity goes up because it's an unequal society. More means catching up uh, to what the other class has. So that was the contradiction they had to deal with. And the point is, the limit of what workers were doing is that a militancy itself wasn't enough. Because if all you were were militant, and capital still controlled capital, they could eventually weaken you by threatening to not invest, by threatening to leave, by basically exhausting you through unemployment, etc. And it took a long time. It took through the 70s. But the lesson has to be that if you just try to go back to the to, to that period, you're going to go back to the same contradictions. So you have to answer, well, what are we going to do? First of all, going back to that period would require you to be incredibly radical because now you have to undo all these things, undo globalization. Uh, uh, and, you know, you have to uh, talk about capital controls. Uh, you have to undo this amazing inequality that's happened since then. So just going back would be hard, but going back just gets you to a period that was contradictory. And then you have to answer that question of the contradiction. Are you going to get out of those contradictions by weakening labor, which was capital's response, which it saw very clearly? Or are you going to get uh, over those contradictions by actually limiting capital? And that gets you into actually having to do radical things. And if you can't do them immediately, you have to think about how do we build the capacity and the strength uh, in terms of structures and institutions and ideology to actually take on capital to deal with finance. And uh, we're not there yet. So this debate about the Keynesian thing is very important. And it's not just an ideological debate about some people wanting to be a little bit more radical than others. It's actually exposing the fact that the Keynesian solution cannot work. It didn't work before because it had contradictions. And that leaves aside the limits of the Keynesian state in the first place. But leaving that aside, the point is that the Keynesian state threw up contradictions. If you want to go back to that, you're going to have the same contradictions and you're going to have to answer those hard questions. So just elaborate a little further on the meaning and the, the role, the historical meaning and role of neoliberalism. Uh, you write here that uh, neoliberalism isn't just a product of capitalists becoming a little bit more uh, meaner, right? Just becoming a little bit more mean-spirited, a little bit more inhuman uh, and inhumane. It's it's a certain kind of reaction to a set of contradictions. So could you just very briefly – I know this is a very, very big topic, could, but this is one of the things that I uh, rail against uh, qu quite regularly on on DPS, which is to say that – Neoliberalism isn't just a set of ideas that were ushered in uh, by the Montpellier Society 
It's not merely just uh, an expression of the meanness of the capitalist class in the Thatcher and Reagan era, but it's a, a necessary result, which is a certain kind of capitalist class fraction response to yeah. the same dilemmas uh, that, that the labor sector yeah. was sort of fighting in the 1960s and 70s. It's sort of the highest expression of their necessary synthesis in that moment. Kind of spell that out for us a little bit. Well, there was a crisis in the in the late 60s into the early 70s of profitability, especially in the United States because of its central role. Uh, it also had to do with the question of the U.S. dollar and whether you could restore uh, U.S. hegemony because the gold standard was falling apart. But those that's kind of technical. I don't want to get into that. It was fundamentally a class problem that if capital was going to maintain its profits and continue to accumulate, it had a deal with this working class that wasn't strong enough to change capitalism, but was strong enough to get in the way. That's what they had to deal with. Now, you have to think of this not just in terms of capital sitting around uh, a team of them around the table, and they have these perfect ideas. There's divisions amongst them about what to do. Part of it is because they don't actually know what to do. It's not clear. They haven't been through this before. So they do all kinds of things. They try some import controls. They try wage and price controls. Uh, they end up experimenting with liberalizing finance, and they don't even know whether that's going to work or that's just going to create chaos. They keep going for that whole decade. They're going through different options. They even stimulated the economy for a while, and they thought, well, maybe this will get us, maybe if we can get growth growing through stimulus, that'll solve it. The point is that none of that worked. And what they learned at the end of the 70s is, one way or the other, they're going to have to crush the working class. And Leo and I interviewed Paul Volcker, uh, the head of the Federal Reserve, who was instrumental in this, who Carter put in charge of the of uh, monetary policy, and then Reagan continued this. Okay. And he was absolutely clear on this. He's kind of, you know, a progressive Democrat. He said, we didn't really want to do this. But if you want to deal with inflation, which is squeezing profits, and it's discrediting the U.S. dollar, you're going to have to break the working class. We just didn't have a choice. And he also said, I don't like what capital has done to it since. They've overdone it. They've gotten too greedy. But the point is that this is what they they saw as necessary. Now, you can say that once they saw this as necessary, and they did, in fact, smash the working class. I mean, one of the things I think they discovered was uh, the working class had a certain kind of militancy, but it wasn't, in fact, that strong. There was a bit of a paper tiger in this, too. Uh, and the defeat of the working class was incredibly profound. Now, once you can really smash the working class, you go further. Greed does matter. They see chances to even go further in terms of weakening labor and shifting inequality. So that, you know, you could say that if you had a bit more militancy right now, you could correct some of those things. You know, you can defend the working class in a particular way, hang on to pensions, but you can't create the kind of secure society, uh, a rich society in terms of people's uh, potentials, uh, a really egalitarian society, a really substantively democratic society, unless you change the system. And that was the lesson. So right now, I would say that neoliberalism isn't even just a stage of capitalism. Neoliberalism is what capitalism is now. This is the only capitalism on offer. That's what Maggie Thatcher was saying when she said, there's no option. This is what you can take. You don't like, you know, what she's really saying is, you don't like this, then change the system. You know, you'd have to start looking at socialism. But you know, this is, there's no options here of a, you know, there might be an option of a capitalism that isn't quite as greedy. 
but it's still going to be a neoliberal capitalism, uh, you know, that goes against everything we think that humanity can actually achieve. Uh, so, you know, that's what we have to confront, and that's what we've been confronting since the early 80s. And with the labor movement actually not just having made concessions, but having been weakened institutionally, and especially its expectations having been lowered. I mean, people take all kinds of things for granted now that they don't even think is possible. This defeat is incredibly profound. And we have to think about overcoming this defeat isn't just going to be putting forth a few policies. This, this is going to take an enormous amount of organization, struggle, education. It's going to take a while, but this is what's going to be necessary. So you're suggesting that uh, neoliberalism didn't come about because uh, enough people read Hayek. That's what you're saying. Right. And it's very it's, it's really important because, you know, there's a lot of radical thinking that explains these terms, these things in terms of the bad guy's ideology won out. And now we just need a good ideology. But what happened was there was a crisis in capitalism, even corporations that had a decent relationship with their union and would have liked to just continue it, found that they had to do something that the pressures of competition and of accumulation defined the fact that they had to do something. And, and it took them a while to figure it out and get there. But, what, you know, what they did, they did out of necessity. And therefore, if we're thinking about changing the system, we have to change those conditions, which made that a necessity. Right. Very well said. I think uh, if folks only uh, listen to one small segment of the show with one 30-second clip, it should be that one, right? I mean, I think that uh, that is so often missed and it's so sorely needed in our socialist uh, intellectual sphere today. So we're going to continue hitting uh, hitting on that point uh, and, and others as we move on here. You also mentioned, too, the importance of understanding that we cannot build a kinder, gentler capitalism on uh, this particular this, – this, this very podcast – I talk a lot, uh, quite a lot about progressive politics, particularly in the realm of the Democratic Party in the United States. And on the one hand, democratic socialists and socialists of all stripes uh, should want to champion the successes of good principled progressives inside of the U.S. Congress right now, uh, fighting down that Republican and uh, new Democrat agenda. But on the other hand, you know, these people, even at their best, I'm thinking of people like uh, Elizabeth Warren, for example dream of a certain kind of capitalism with a human face. And she wants to sort of rein in finance. Uh, although, you know, consumer protections are important, it doesn't get to the heart, the systemic nature of, of finance and capitalism. Um, so this brings me to, to our, our point number two. We're going to have to move a little faster here. Uh, I yes. promise I'll, I'll get moving here, which is uh, not, not, that's, that's not, that's not your fault. Uh, not at all. I love every second of this. I'll just, uh, I'll try to move and, and connect. I'll try to connect some of these together. I think most of these sort of run together as we move on here. You'll, you'll see how they're, uh, the audience will see how they're organically connected. Uh, number two is don't single out finance quote unquote, productive capitalism is every bit a part of the problem as the quote, speculative rentier kind. So talk to us a little bit about this sort of phony distinction that, once again, we're picking on Keynesians today. Keynesians like to bring about when we talk about reigning in Wall Street. We want to sort of stop these uh, casino capitalists from, you know, making off with our hard-earned money that, that sort of feeds the, the quote-unquote productive uh, sector. Talk to us a little bit about that. 
Well, I'm all for everybody attacking finance as much as they can. I mean, we just have to understand yeah. that the issue is capitalism, not finance. That, that the liberalization of finance that happened in the 70s was, again, something that was a systematic response to the end of the gold standard. And finance ended up playing critical roles for capital. That's what we have to get. You don't, you don't, when you talk to capitalists, especially big capitalists, you don't find them attacking finance. And there's a reason for it. And what finance does for them, it makes it possible for them to go international because they have to deal with exchange rates and financial insecurity around those exchange rates. So they want to be able to buy hedges against these exchange rates. So it's very important in that sense. Capitalists go through restructuring. They look to finance for helping them with mergers and the kind of restructuring they have. Mm-hmm. Finance is a critical part of integrating the working class through debt. So finance is a critical part of discipline, disciplining states so that they don't uh, give in to pressures for better social programs. So it disciplines states, it disciplines workers, and it disciplines capital itself. I mean, the difference between capitalists, I, I might have said that in that, that article, I don't remember, but when capitalists compete, they actually come out stronger because the weak get pushed aside and the strong survive. When workers compete, they divide each other, themselves. They become weaker. Now, finance is, you know, forcing that kind of discipline and even strengthening capital as a class, even if individual capitalists fall apart. So finance is, finance is moving capital to where it seems more profitable. I mean, you know, to have something like the Silicon Valley, that required finance and venture capital to move it from certain sectors to other sectors. So we have to get it into our heads that finance is a fundamental part of capital. Now, it's going to be crucial to take on this question of, well, how the hell do you control finance? But what you have to understand is that if you if you controlled finance, if you controlled our savings, then the question is, well, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to use it to just give it to, you know, to create a more competitive capital to strengthen the rest of capital? Or are you going to do it to challenge them? And if you're going to do it to challenge them, then they're going to be fighting just as hard when you're trying to control finance because they they see the threat to themselves. You know, we asked we asked the president of General Motors, Leo and I had an interview with him and uh, of General Motors globally, and we asked him how how come you accepted this monetary policy coming out of the Fed, which put interest rates at eighteen uh, percent. Uh, it basically cut your production in more than half. You had all these idle capacities. Nobody could buy cars. How come you accepted this? And his answer was quite straightforward. He said, well, we had no choice. Keynesianism didn't work. How else were we going to get the system working again? We needed discipline. And finance was the only one that could actually force that discipline by, you know, accepting those kinds of uh, higher interest rates and capital and, and, and the movements uh, across sectors. So, so that is critical. Now, related to that is when people like Warren talk about taking on finance, you know, it'd be one thing if she said we should nationalize them. Then you can say, okay, well, that's great. And then what are you going to do with the money? That's one question. But what she's saying is, you know, and Sanders falls into this too, is we have to break up finance. And what they're falling into is not even the welfare state. It's a notion of capitalism that if you only have competition, free competition, that would be great. Let's just cut these big firms to smaller size and competition is great. Well, if you really tell workers this, what they see is competition is a threat. This notion of competition being idolized for workers, competition 
pits them against other workers everywhere in the world. And it's a foundation for their insecurity. And it's also a foundation for making them close, more closely linked to their own bosses. If we have to compete, we want to be with them. So this whole notion of competition, which is part of this, let's get the banks to compete with each other, has to really be addressed. This isn't, you know, there's questions of functionality. I mean, if you really broke up the banks and you still have a capitalist society, wouldn't you have more instability if you had smaller banks that could fail? But, but yeah, we have this populist left analysis of finance that just isn't helpful. So much to say here. I'd like to delve into a little bit about some of you and Leo's findings uh, or claims when it comes to the role of American finance sort of enabling the project of American-style globalization because it seems to me that that's a part that's often crucially uh, missed by progressives, by people who want a kinder and gentler form of American finance, Um, which is to say that a part of the settlement, if, if, if you will. Now, settlement sounds so nice and tidy as though everyone sort of signed an agreement willingly, as though neoliberalism isn't a tr- horrendously violent and destructive process for so many millions and millions, if not billions of people. But there was a certain kind of settlement wherein the, uh, the role of finance uh, existed in order to, to enable the project of American globalization. And so just pulling the rug of finance out from under the American project and then expecting the American project to continue as is, is a little bit naive. Am I getting that right? Uh, what, what was uh, you and Leo's critique with, with respect to finance and globalization? Well, with all these questions, you know, we're, we're kind of going back to the post-war period and the 70s, and it's not just to look at history. It, it's that... Uh, these categories are emerged through history. Uh, you know, what finance is at one point in time changes over time. And finance has become more important. Uh, the post-war order was structured around the gold standard. Uh, and that was kind of the form of discipline. If you're not, uh, you know, you'd lose some of your uh, gold would flow out when uh, you weren't behaving properly and having uh, deficits. Uh, but it was a relatively flexible system uh, in terms of operations. And it worked for a while because what the goal at the time was, was re- reconstruction. They were trying to reconstruct Europe. They were trying to say to Europe, yeah, you can have some protectionism for, for now because we want to restructure the power relations and the class relations that existed before because it wasn't just a crisis of the economy. It was a, it was a crisis of the legitimacy of capitalism and capitalist classes. So there was a certain amount of flexibility. The U.S. was carrying a certain burden for opening up its markets, but not forcing everybody else to do it, uh, for not enforcing a certain kind of discipline on everybody else. But as these countries emerged, as they became stronger and they became more competitive and were shipping things to the United States, the United States began to have a problem in terms of uh, deficits, which led to concerns about the dollar. Uh, And the question was how to deal with this. What finance offered, what liberalized finance offered, was it could actually replace the gold standard. There was a new way of regulating capital globally that could be done through financial markets, kind of a neutral looking way, but it was founded on the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar was critical. The U.S. dollar was critical because only the U.S. had those large financial markets and because the U.S. actually controlled its working class, didn't make anybody nervous about it. So the dollar, 
finance begins to become more central. Doesn't mean that it's replacing what existed before, but it becomes more central to this system working internationally around those two basic features that were unique about the American empire. One was that the American empire wasn't territorial. It didn't have to take over Europe. You could say you can all have your sovereign states. And the second thing it said was, and it'll all be fair. We'll have one empire, essentially, that we're going to superintend, and everybody can buy the resources that they need and trade, and it's all going to be done on markets. That's going to be the only criteria. No prejudice. And, you know, this was what was bringing everybody into the empire. So finance was was another tool that was developing as the system became more complex to coordinate it. and, you know, just, just saying we're going to drop finance, you know, just raises questions. Well, how's the international economy going to work? You have to keep asking those questions because it is a system. You take mm-hmm. out one piece of it, you have to ask, well, what's going to happen? Would it be counterproductive? Or, you know, what is going to happen, in fact, is the system is going to have go into crisis. And then you're going to have to say, well, do we then retreat because that didn't work? Or do we go further? And if you don't ask that question, then you're just kind of suddenly going to be confronted by the system falling apart and your base getting angry at you because they see who's being responsible for it. Right. This transitions very neatly into your third, uh, third, uh, I'm not quite sure what we're calling these third, uh, clarion call, if you will, <laughs> you write globalization isn't Pandora's box and it doesn't mean it's now too late to use politics to get our hands around capital's neck. So as you've just described, Uh, Globalization is what you call the third leg of the powerful triad that also includes neoliberalism and financialization. And if we want to um, untangle this uh, incredibly complex web of globalization and neoliberalism and financialization, we have to be prepared to go all the way and deal with them as a coherent system. But you also indicate that we shouldn't be fatalistic about the the kind of uh, seeming all encompassing, uh, seemingly all encompassing character of this thing. So, what do, what do you mean by it's not too late to use politics to get our hands around capital's neck? Well, what what we have to understand is that there's nothing, you know, for for, for workers and for good parts of the left. Neoliberalism, globalization, financialization became the excuses for why you can't do anything. They were fetishized in that sense, as if they were natural, as if the world can only move in one direction, which is to get bigger, more global, uh, have more finance, which is basically abstract capital, because uh, it's not tied concretely to uh, a particular place. And one of the things we have to learn to understand is that globalization was actually made. It wasn't just natural. There's a problem in Marx in the manifesto. You know, It's brilliant on globalization and it captures the fact that globalization is a trend, but it doesn't ask the question of, well, what if there are states around who actually want to protect their own capital? What happens? And the point is that was actually a problem. You know, wars were fought over these things. You know, if you look at the history of, the, you know, the first half of the 20th century, we had two wars and a Great Depression. Didn't exactly look like the system was automatic and invulnerable and could work. People actually challenged it. And it had to be made. And that was what the American state did. You know, the American state was strong in the 20s. I shouldn't say the American state was strong. The American economy was strong in the 20s. American finance was strong in the 20s. 
but it didn't grasp this need to say we have to make the system work somehow. And they only learned that uh, through the experience of the Depression and the Second World War, calling the First World War. Uh, they learned that, hey, if we just think this thing is going to work automatically, we're just going to be back to the same things. People fighting each other, like competition being expressed politically rather than just through markets. And then through the Depression and the Second World War, they actually developed new capacities to do this, which they hadn't had before. So, so globalization was actually something that was made. Now, once you begin to realize that it was made, you know, through a lot of trial and error, but it was made, it poses the question of, well, anything that can be made can be unmade. It's not inevitable. You know, the problem is that it's also pretty overwhelming. And that's just something we have to confront. It can be unmade, but it can't be unmade by snapping our fingers. It can't be unmade by simply talking about policies. It can't be unmade by saying we're not going to believe in Hayek and Friedman anymore. We have better ideas. It actually is about power and figuring out how we give people a sense of hope and vision and showing them we have structures that they can work through that can change things. Because otherwise, you just lower your expectations. If you don't see a way of changing things, you can still have some dreams, but they're going to get smaller. So so this is the big failure that we haven't been able to build. The kind of structures, I'm talking about the kind of unions, the kind of political parties, the kinds of popular organizations fighting over anything at the community level, the city level, to give people the confidence to start thinking about, it's going to be a long-term project. How do we build the capacity to change this world, which isn't the end of history, it isn't the ultimate that humanity can achieve, and it isn't inevitable. And that requires thinking about the state, which maybe is your next point. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. You're headed in the right direction. It's almost like you wrote the piece yourself. So number four, we've got, uh, despite what we're told, individual nation states play a bigger role in the expansion of global capital than ever before. And this one here, I got to tell you, Sam, this here just makes when people violate this tenet. It drives me nuts. The idea that globalization means that the politics and the the role of nations uh, don't matter anymore, because this right here is the naturalization by alleged socialists of the Tony Giddens inevitability of globalization thesis from the early 90s that has been so thoroughly defeated by the rise of people like Corbyn and Sanders and and others uh, across the world. The fact that nation states are more powerful than they ever have been, and it's absolutely crucial that we get a grip on the politics at home before we start looking abroad or looking at sort of like global phenomenon or a certain kind of cheap internationalism. Uh, So what do you make of uh, this fourth tenet here? Yeah, no, what you just laid out is absolutely critical because you end up with uh, uh, an internationalism that is attractive in one sense because it sounds so progressive, you know, social justice is going to be international if it's going to mean anything. Uh, you know, so internationalism is important, but we really do have to unpack this and then we should return to, well, what does internationalism really mean? Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that people, that struck people and confused people, and I think confused a lot of good people as well, was that, well, wait a second, the state is a national institution. It's territorially bounded, but accumulation has become global. Now, isn't that a contradiction? And it is a contradiction. The question is, well, how do you how do you put these two things together? 
And it isn't a matter of sitting down and figuring out in a logical way. Uh, it's, it's actually that what happened, what evolved, you know, capital comes up against problems and barriers and it tries to figure out what to do. What evolved was that nation states were internationalized. This is really a critical issue. This is something that Leo really emphasized a lot in an article in uh, 1994, thinking about the Canadian state, that nation states began to take responsibility for global accumulation within their own borders, which means that, you know, GM gets subsidies from the Canadian state. The Canadian state manages the workforce in a way that is good for these multinationals. The Canadian state wants to attract capital, but it can't attract them by just forcing them to do things because that breaks the rules of internationalism. So it can only do it by creating a favorable environment for capital inside its own borders. And they're dependent on capital, not just their own capital, but all capital. And when they create favorable conditions for global capital, they're also creating conditions for their own capital, for the domestic capital. So it's not a contradiction between global capital and domestic capital. They're both unified in terms of making the conditions for capital accumulation ideal, which means it's a class struggle. So this this point that nation states have become internationalized in the sense of, you know, they're representing, you know, there's democratic structures, there, you know, there's elections, there's things that go on nationally, there's still cultural things that tie the capitalists together, but the role of the state is trying to create the conditions for global accumulations at the national level. So what you find is, okay, uh, that's easy to see. Everybody can see this. When you look at countries, you can see, hey, what they're really doing is creating these conditions for global capital. But it goes further. Then they get together and they say, we need free trade agreements. Uh, so the rules are in place that no one's going to break those rules, uh, but do them according to principles of markets and free capital flows that don't discriminate against, discriminate against any capital. So, it, you know, so in the Canadian state, for example, this was the point of Leo's article in 1994, was it was the Canadian state that was asking for the free trade agreement with the United States. It wasn't that the Canadian state lost its sovereignty. And what that means is we have to think about sovereignty differently. It's not that states are losing their sovereignty. It's that the people are losing the democratic sovereignty to change things in the future because what free trade agreements do is they create a constitution for corporations. You know, they're basically about the free flow of capital. And if you've got the free flow of capital, then you want to be able to ship your goods wherever you want. So you also want free trade. So, so this is really a fundamental point about understanding capitalism. And then, and then, and then the, the corollary of all of this is, well, if you really want to take on globalization, don't say, let's go to the IMF and protest something. Go to the European Union and protest something. You're not going to change anything until you can change things in your own country. And this was this brilliant line in the Communist Manifesto where Marx said that the, the struggle in substance is always international. Because whenever you fight in one place, you're changing the conditions for people someplace else. You're either undermining them or you're creating a space for them to struggle. But what he emphasizes, the form of the struggle is always with your own bourgeoisie. It's always national. You have to come to terms with your own bourgeoisie first. And that's fundamental, which gets to this question of internationalism. Or do you want to 
interrupt me first. No, not at all. Let's go there. There's a number of points in this particular essay. Uh, people have it in front of them. They have it. Uh, they can snag it off of Jacob, and I'll put it in the show notes. There are a number of things that we will inev- inevitably get to here, but uh, let's move to this question of building a substantive internationalism. And I think it really encompasses all of the central tenets that you've uh, laid out so far very wonderfully, and we're sort of coming to a natural crescendo here. So let's 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 not interrupt that and keep that going. What are okay. the components of a substantive internationalism and how does it uh, how does that tie into some of the really controversial and hot button topics that are circulating on the left right now with respect to say immigration and socialist uh, socialist arguments for open borders? Because I'm not sure if you've been uh, privy to these things, but uh, one of the hottest debates of the year thus far very easily has been a piece that uh, was written by Angela Nagel. It was called The Left Case Against Open Borders. And she she sort of uh, broke down the discourse of how immigration has been catacornered into a very simplistic and naive formulation, which is that, you know, open borders good, closed borders bad. And that, uh, you know, that the good is represented by the left and that's the only left position. And the bad, of course, is represented by the right and the far right. Whereas it's not to say that uh, socialists shouldn't be supportive of migrants and defend migrants' rights uh, anywhere and everywhere. Lay down our our bodies, if need be, to protect immigrants and all oppressed people everywhere. But to move uh, from that claim, that statement, which I take just to be a universal, uh, you know, fact, the universal truism of socialist ideals. But to move from that statement to say that we should defend migrants in any and all cases, to say that we should just abolish borders overnight is uh, problematic, to put it lightly. That's that's my take on the topic. People have been asking me for it, so I'll just go ahead and give it to you there in, in, in brief. But okay. what do you make of this? How do we build a substantive internationalism in the place of this kind of abstract sloganeering around open borders? Okay, well, let me start with open borders, but then I'd like to you know, go a little bit further into other issues that are related. My concern with open borders, and this goes back quite a while ways is that because it's because it's just a slogan and doesn't actually force you to get into a serious discussion i was convinced that it would lead to a backlash from workers they would simply see it as it's going to be some unregulated flow and it's going to undermine our our you know our welfare state and our social programs in some cases it was about uh, job competition although that's you know that's faded and I was concerned that uh, it would lead to a backlash and that that wasn't helpful and it wouldn't actually lead to any basis for a serious discussion. There's a couple of things I think we have to keep on the table. When you actually, you know, the U.S. has had a lot of migration, a lot of immigrants, which wasn't a problem. You end up with a problem when there's a whole sudden explosion in numbers. And that's usually linked to something that's actually happening in the world that has to do with global capitalism and imperialism. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things we have to talk about is the fact that people don't actually like to leave their communities. This isn't a great thing to leave your community. You'd like to, you know, build up your community. There's a liberal notion that people should be able to move anywhere in the world just like capital is. But, you know, in terms of, yeah, you know, people want to make choices. We should let some people, you know, we should let people have a certain amount of freedom in terms of moving. But we really have to think about, uh, that underlying problem that it's because communities are being destroyed rather than supported 
that creates one of the major problems. And then you suddenly have an inflow of refugees. That, that's one issue. The second issue is that, you know, we have this stereotype of what an immigrant is, which is always based on, especially in the U.S., a Mexican worker coming up. But in both Canada and the United States, almost half of the immigration is now coming from Asian countries. And a lot of it is people with high skills. And in a sense, it's a brain drain that's going on. There's a brain drain going on from the third world, which is invested in this. And we're getting them where the real issue is they should be getting them. They're the ones that need this. There should be a transfer the other way. So we have to kind of think about, well, that's at least a problem. Let's talk about that. So let's talk about imperialism. Let's talk about the brain drain. Then when you have refugees coming in, it is a humanitarian problem. And I think even if it's unpopular, I think in a lot of, you know, when you have those kinds of humanitarian problems, you have to convince people that there's a humanitarian thing to do. And I, you know, I don't know about other communities, but I was surprised in Canada when the question of Syrian refugees came up and people saw what was actually going on in Syria, how open they were, how actually they wanted to help. I mean, all kinds of, in my neighborhood, uh, and I didn't lead this, we supported in it, but people were forming committees to uh, support and uh, adopt refugee. You know, there was, there was a restaurant that was inviting them in at night to cook their meals and then learned, liked their cooking. So he began to actually spread those meals as part of his own menu. But, you know, people aren't that ungenerous when they understand that moment. And then you do have this question of talking about regulation. I mean, people could understand if you said, we're going to have immigration. We've always had it. Uh, you know, they play a, per- a particular role. There's a reason for why, you know, being generous and saying, look, some people can come here if they want. But, you know, saying that it has to be regulated doesn't mean you can't be generous about it, that you can't say, you know, we have to make sure that those numbers aren't just trying to keep them out. So, you know, there's those kinds of things. And it gives you a chance to get into a discussion to remind people that, you know, the, the flow of immigrants from Mexico has actually fallen. You know, you wouldn't know that from reading the press. So, so you know, if you just take this, you know, superficially radical position of open borders, you get everybody screaming about we're going to be flooded. If you actually say, look, we have to regulate this, then you can get into discussion and say, look, Mexicans haven't actually been coming here for, you know, for a while, that there are particular problems in these countries. You can get into a discussion of radical issues about imperialism and transfers of technology and brain uh, and the transfer of brains. And, you know, there's another thing that somebody raised with me. There was a, a, a woman in uh, Toronto who had been doing a study of migrants from immigrants from Mexico. And she said, there's also a lot of immigrants who actually have some upward mobility, uh, teachers, doctors and stuff that leave, not just the high tech people, but uh, professionals, middle class. And there are a lot of the people who could have had they stayed in their community, become organizers for development within their societies. Uh, and instead, when they left, that actually pulled a lot of that potential out as well. So, so there's that other question, which gets to another point, which gets, I think, to the main point, and this links up with what we've been talking about. If we really want to help the third world, I mean, if we're serious about helping them build their communities, if that's what socialists would want to do, that requires some big things. Well, it's not actually clear, just to jump in, it's not actually clear that that is what these particular socialists want to do. Because because I don't hear anybody talking about the fact that that's actually what they want to do or that's what we should be doing. All I hear, what takes up all the oxygen in the room is that we ought to do everything that we can to allow anybody across the world who wants to come to the United States do that. 
which no, which on, on the one hand, I think, you know, that's fine. That's fine and dandy in theory. But I think you're right to point out that that's just it's not a substantive way to actually help people um, in any significant way. Sorry, I just wanted to jump in there and note that. Yeah, no, uh, no, no, you're right. I mean, there's two things just about that. One is that it is a liberal notion of people solve their problems individually and we want to support it, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean that liberal rights aren't important. I'm not opposed, you know, I'm not against keeping people uh, out and never having any immigrants, obviously. But there is that liberal notion instead of the collective notion, which gets back to how do we actually help them in their uh, develop in their community. So I I think that's a distinction. And you're right. I mean, I have found it very difficult in public meetings to raise this question because it sounds like you're Mm anti-immigrant. And I think we also have to think about we're talking about a political problem. That we have to win working class people over to. And to win working class people over, uh, you have to, you have to actually recognize that there is a problem. They're nervous about this. Well, how do you deal with this? And then you can start explaining it. And, you know, the other thing is we can say that, look, when migrants come here, when immigrants come here, uh, they should be absolutely treated just like any other worker. There should be no discrimination against them in terms of Rights, that's fundamental. And workers can understand that. If you say to them that these people are now in our country and they're doing this work, they will get it. They will say, well, of course they shouldn't be exploited and treated differently. You know, what they're asking is, well, what should the level be? So then it also allows you to talk about solidarity. And then it also allows to say, yeah, I can understand why you're worried about social programs, but what's really attacking your social programs? It's been the state and it's been capital and it's been political forces in our country. That's what's undermining our social programs. So why don't we fight against that? And, you know, the other reality of immigrants that also you can't raise when you're having that kind of discussion is that immigrants actually have more needs than just having your social programs. They've got special needs. But if you want to talk about those special needs, then that's the context in which you can talk about it. You can say, honestly, yes, when they come here, they're going to have special needs instead of saying, no, no, they're not going to affect our social programs. So I'm just saying there's a more realistic practical way of talking about this that can actually build a movement rather than being pure and counterproductive. And it's not just that they're being pure in a good sense. They're missing a lot of these points. And that gets to if we accept that, look, we really do want international solidarity. How do we have it? And there you get a different kind of slogan, which is international worker solidarity becomes the slogan. And the answer to every problem is, well, you can't solve globalization until workers of the world unite. And again, it's another example of, well, wait a second. You know, from what I can see, uh, steel workers don't get along with auto workers. Public sector workers and private sector workers don't get along here. What are you talking about when you say you expect solidarity with, with workers in another continent with different standards and who don't speak and know each other and who aren't neighbors? So, you know, the lesson there is, look, if you really want international solidarity, you build it where you are. You begin to build you know, uh, a class in this country, and you begin to build an ideology that can both be sensitive to international solidarity, but can actually do something about it. You know, the question is, what can Canadian workers do if they can't even help themselves? What are they going to do about workers in South Africa? You know, it's a real question. So building power in your own country is a step towards internationalism because it's a step towards being able to do something. I mean, suppose we said that what is this crazy system here that we're worried about uh, technology going to Latin America and then the goods being shipped here? Well, you could say, 
why don't we give them the technology and tell them to use it for their own people? That's what they should be doing with that technology instead of, you know, making goods for us. Uh, and then you begin to think in terms of, you know, a strategy that helps them develop, that actually shares technology, but then you have to control the technology. We can't say, you know, we're going to send you this machinery because we want to. Corporations control it and they move it for their own purposes. So, you know, so I'm just saying, you know, it, it, you, you can you can go from a critique of open borders and, you know, what you've called a, a cheap internationalism to talk about a real internationalism. That does mean that you have the power to help each other and then, you, you know, the power to stay in your community, uh, to share technology rather than to compete for it. Then, you know, that's what it means. I, I, I you know, I, uh, in the auto workers, we tried to deal with this question of how do you have internationalism uh, beyond slogans? And I, I, I've written a pamphlet on this, which I tried to, you know, uh, use for uh, conferences we had with Mexican and American workers. And my argument was basically that rather than having a free trade agreement, why don't we have an agreement that says that every country, each country, uh, had a right to a certain share of the jobs based on the size of their market. And with Mexican market growing faster at that point in time, uh, Mexico didn't have much of an auto industry. We would accept that Mexican jobs could increase faster because their market was growing faster. But it was a way of controlling the corporations, basically saying if you want to make profits in our community, you have to make a commitment to jobs in our community. So that was kind of trying to get at a principle that stopped us fighting with each other and said, we're fighting the corporations for rights in each of our countries. Why couldn't we have an organizing campaign that's just announced to the corporations, uh, we're going to organize the parts components, and it doesn't matter if you're going to try to go into Mexico. We've got a plan now to organize them in Mexico. The Mexicans will do it, but we'll financially support them. And if you don't give in, we're going to just keep shutting down the big three. Uh, and, you know, we'll have a war for a decade, but you're going to have instability all the time. And we're going to do this in each of the countries. Anybody tries to move, we're going to have solidarity. Why don't we talk about having reduced work time when there's so much productivity that is just laying off people? You know, we were in Mexico and we went to uh, the Volkswagen plant. And on the way there, we passed slums of a million people, a million people on the way to the Volkswagen plant. We get into the Volkswagen plant. And they're working faster than any human beings we've ever seen before. Now, what is the sense of cutting back on the workforce by working that fast when you've got all these people here? So the question isn't, how do we link up with Volkswagen workers and raise their standards and isolate them from the rest of their working class? The question is, how do we help them struggle in Mexico? And if, and if working fewer hours or working not as fast gets more people into those auto jobs, that's an example of solidarity in their country and solidarity in our country. So, can, you know, can we start thinking about the kind of things we can do together that require us to mobilize in each of our countries for that kind of a general thing? And that's the kind of discussions I think, you know, have been missing. Right. So it seems to me that the real concern here that I have with this discussion about open borders being sort of the cure-all, the fix-it for internationalism is that they're not talking about internationalism at all. They're actually talking about a very narrow set of policies that are very, very important and that should be debated and discussed widely in North America and particularly in the United States given the crisis at our southern border uh, with the atrocities that the Trump administration has committed itself to. And, and by the way, they're carrying over many of Obama's 
policies and Bush, uh, you know, the second and and Clinton and so on down the line. Right. I mean, what's been happening at the southern border is by no stretch of the imagination new. The rhetoric is just uh, more heated out of that uh, big, fat, orange blob of a president we've got uh, right now. But uh, that's just to say that what's missing, the only way to achieve the more substantive aims, the noble aims of the open borders crowd is to accomplish a real substantive internationalism. And I think you're, you're absolutely right to point to the fact that those discussions haven't even been had, certainly not in the last 10 years. And when we say, you know, we just need to join hands with our brothers and sisters working across the world or, or what have you, these sort of slogans that get sort of tossed up without any kind of real substantive plan put in place, uh, that's all just hot air. And uh, we're still ravaging communities across the globe, expecting that uh, everyone can sort of flee to the United States is uh, is not only completely unrealistic, but it's uh, not doing anyone any good for a number of reasons. Yeah, so so many more things to say here. I think that uh, we can transition here because there's the, the fear-mongering and the, the sort of concerns that go up from some of the people about open borders, about what will happen or what won't happen if there aren't open borders, if we don't solve the immigration crisis today, expecting to sort of whip people up into a moral frenzy. It's just never going to be enough. So the sixth point you raise here is fear-mongering about environmental or economic collapse isn't going to magically turn people into socialists. We have to build large democratic organizations that can eventually reckon directly with state power. Well, there's two questions there. Uh, One is the question of how do we deal with the environment? Because the contradiction we have, which is a real contradiction, is that on the one hand, there's a sense of urgency. We have to do this immediately. And then there's a sense of, but to really do it well and seriously, uh, you have to deal with capitalism because capitalism is fundamental to this. Uh, a system that treats humans as commodities and treats nature as commodities is going to be a problem for humans and for nature. And it does mean a cultural change in what we value. Uh, you know, workers are consumerists, but a lot of that consumerism is about if you have a shitty life, you're trying to compensate for it. You know, the, the word compensation for your work is actually the right word. You're robbed of your humanity. You're robbed of your capacity. Somebody else controls your skills and how you're going to develop as a human being. And all your all that's on offer is some compensation for that. And therefore, you need something to buy with that compensation. Otherwise, it's not much compensation. So there's a whole, again, you know, our, our, those kinds of cultural values that workers are attacked for is part of a system. So the question is, how do you deal with this question of urgency? on the one hand, but then changing capitalism, which is, which is a long-term thing. And the way that people bridge it is they think that if you just stretch stress, urgency, people will get it and will create another society that isn't capitalist and isn't anti-environmentalist. And that's just naive. And, and I want to be clear here. I'm not saying don't stress urgency. I'm saying tell the truth. If the truth is that the crisis is big, tell it. But don't think that fear necessarily leads people to doing the right thing. You can just as easily throw up your hands and say, what, you know, what, what can I do? I mean, this is, we're condemned. This is it. I might as well forget it. There's nothing about fear that necessarily, you know, uh, mobilizes people. So we have to tell the truth. We have to say how bad it is, definitely. But then we have to say, what can we do now? And there's always possibilities of resistance. There's always fights you can have 
to prevent it from coming, becoming worse, you know, fighting against the pipeline, you know, in Canada, you know, there's a big fight over the pipelines. Well, what that's about is everybody knows that the oil thing is going to change. They're just trying to make as much money as they can while people still are using oil. So they're trying to put this infrastructure in place to make that money. And then that's going to be a waste. So there's things we can fight. There's always things you can fight in the present to defend yourself. But we also have to recognize that this is going to require us to uh, change capitalism. And if you really want to be urgent, you better start thinking about changing capitalism. It's not going to be in five or 10 years, but you better start thinking about that because if you don't change capitalism, you're not going to change values. You're not going to change, you know, the possibility, you know, the environment of anything tells you that uh, you have to have some planning. You know, right. you know, right. Economists talk about externalities and they put the environment in the context of, yeah, there's some imperfections in our economic theory because we don't account for externalities like the environment. Well, the trouble is their externalities, the environment, equality, workers' capacities are what the main questions are. They're not exceptions. They're the substance of what we have to cope with. So, uh, so you know, we have to use the environment in a way that actually teaches about capitalism. And that's crucial. So I think just to put a finer point on what you've just said, even perhaps even more so than you did, was to suggest it's not only the fact that fear is not really uh, a useful or it's not a, a successful strategy for pushing people in a leftward direction, a principled socialist direction. But it's also true that as we have seen time and time again, the ruling class and the political class is incredibly adept at waiting out these kind of ebbs and flows of political movements. It's yeah. one of the things right now that I'm, I'm a little bit afraid of. On, on the one hand, I'm very heartened and emboldened by the Sunshine Movement, the Green New Deal folks, the people, uh, the, the kids who are pushing in the halls of Congress. They occupied Nancy Pelosi's office and uh, they're, they're pushing for a Green New Deal. And there's a lot of enthusiasm. They're taking arrests at uh, congressional offices. And I'm, I'm very uh, excited by that. But on the one hand, on, on the other hand, rather, we have seen various waves like this crash on the beaches, so to speak, without a whole lot of substantive change. And I think the political class knows now that they can wait out these changes in a variety of ways. And of course, now we have uh, their elected representatives in the halls of power, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's not going to let that movement crash in quite the same way. So we have made... I'm not sure that this movement will crash right. the way others will, because the environment, that, you know, you can have a movement around inequality and people can uh, learn to accept it. You can have, you know, all kinds of things. The environment isn't going away. So, yeah, you know, we, we should admire these people for at least resisting, and we should see them as people in the process of development. They're learning about politics, and that's all you know, really important. But our role as socialists is to start talking about it more seriously. Like when we tell people uh, that we're going to have a transition uh, to a, a Green Deal, you're all going to be protected. Well, then you have to, have, you know, workers are going to say, what? What do you mean I'm going to be protected? You're going to shut down my job on what? You're going to promise me another one? You don't have the power to promise me another one to do to do that, you need a planned economy. And we have to raise those questions because what people are talking about in a Green Deal is ideologically admirable. And in, from an activist perspective, it's admirable. But it isn't thinking through, well, what would it really take if you wanted to tell workers, we have a plan. And if you lose your job, there's going to be more jobs around the environment. 
you'd have to control investment at least. Uh, so, so we should see this as an opportunity to engage them in the discussion without making them feel helpless at the end. You know, if they say, well, we don't have the power to do this, you're intimate, you're overwhelming me. We have to say, okay, well, if you're serious, you have to ask, well, how do we build the power to do this? That's the question, which gets to the question of the state. I mean, you, you know, we've had for so long people been being so cynical about state power. You know, whether it was because of the Soviet Union or the bureaucracy that they saw that people had this notion of you just mobilize in the streets and we'll have protests, we'll have demonstrations. And I, you know, it, it is positive, even if there's a certain superficiality <clears throat> in it that people are learning that somehow or the other we have to take state power. Now, the critical thing here is a lot of <clears throat> young people are really cynical about the notion of state power. They don't trust it. And there are good reasons to not trust it. And part of the mistake that social Democrats make is that they defend existing states. They just kind of call for what we need is more government. And that's not good enough. What we have to talk about is transforming the state. We don't want to take over a capitalist state that has developed historically and has certain capacities to do certain things and can't do the things we really want like to be democratic and to support, you know, democratic takeovers, uh, you know, to support community uh, development and uh, democracy at the community level. We want to transform the state. We want to transform the state so it actually supports all the democratic things that you're talking about. We want to deepen democracy so it isn't just about uh, elections, but it's actually a form of society. And to do that, we need the kind of tools that exist in the state. And if we don't take that on, you know, it's aside from the question of having to deal with the judiciary and the police and the army and the oppressive forces. But just in terms of doing the kind of things we want to do, we have to create a different kind of state. And that raises a lot of uh, creative questions. Well, how would you really do this? How would it be different? Because we haven't had this before. Where's our model? It also raises questions of what, what would public sector workers do? You'd want them to be thinking differently. Because if public sectors are just going to be militant, they're just going to see it. Well, it's great that you took over the state. Now we can get more. You want public sectors to think in terms of, well, how do we form a council to relate with, if we're social workers, with people who are poor? How do we solve their problems? How do we work together? Uh, or people in transit thinking about, well, how do we change the transit system? So, you know, these are all revolutions in how we think and organize and think about new institutions. And when you start thinking that way, it gets hopeful. Because if people are really sitting around thinking creatively about what we possibly could do, that's hopeful. When you just, you know, have cliches, uh, it's exciting for a while. But then when people come up against it, they get demoralized. And it's the end of organizing. So we're transitioning quite naturally into your final point here. Point number eight is we need to buy ourselves some time. Now, it's my understanding that you've been doing a lot of traveling in the past few years. You've been speaking to workers' movements. You've been assessing the situation of, say, you know, the UK Labor Party, the Corbyn experiment. You've been in uh, close, uh, you know, con contact and having a lot of conversations with people, militants, and, and both politicians uh, on the ground as well, who are in the midst of hatching, you know, the early phases of this kind of transition of developing capacities inside and outside the state. Uh, what are some of the key, 
you know, anecdotes that you've come across there. Uh, you mentioned you were, you just took a trip to Scandinavia. What are some of the conversations that are being had? How are people looking to stop this juggernaut of uh, neoliberal globalization and in order to uh, bring a little bit of uh, humanity to the world? Well, uh, I, have to be, I have to be honest about what you just described. I mean, I feel like I'm a visitor. I feel like, you know, I, uh, I feel like we, none of us really have a handle on what's going on. We're all kind of struggling to figure out. And there's a lot of uh, listening to do. There's a lot of experimenting to do. Uh, there's a lot of watching to do. I, ha- I have a sense that, you know, there's going to be some very good things that happen and then they're going to run into new jams and we have to just understand this. Well, this is how socialism is going to come up, going to happen. You know, th- th- we're going to do things and we're going to learn from them. And when they don't happen the way we want, instead of saying uh, we have to give up, we're going to have to say, well, what did we do wrong? We have to keep kind of learning from it because it really is about figuring out how to do this. It isn't as if there's a plan that you can take off the shelf. Um, I I guess, you know, some of the main things that I would conclude is one is that uh, people see the unions as critical to social change. That's been fundamental to Marxism, that working class organizations are going to be fundamental. And Lenin had argued that uh, the trouble with unions is that they're economic organizations. They're not political organizations. You need a political organization. Uh, There's another point to this, though. And I I think that unions aren't going to spontaneously become, uh, never mind socialist organizations, but better organizations that actually develop workers' capacities that can conduct struggles more effectively, and that creates space for socialist ideas, even if they're not socialist, without a political party. And I think this question of a political party is absolutely fundamental. And it isn't it isn't because we want to win the next election. It's because, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, Chicago teachers do this fantastic stuff, and they organize, and they establish a relationship with, their teach- with their parents, and they win a strike. But when you look at it, then you ask, well, how did this affect the rest of the city in Chicago? You find out that a lot of the rest of the city didn't support this. A lot of the unions in the city didn't support this. You find out that the parent organization and in a lot of other states didn't support this organization. And the problem was, how do you spread all that good stuff that happened in Chicago out? And the workers themselves, it's very difficult to do because they're so absorbed and overwhelmed. The role of a party is to have some feet in the unions and feet outside of them. So it can spread these things. It's a space where we can strategize and really exchange ideas systematically uh, and think about all these problems and learn the right lessons from them or the best lessons from them and think about what new structures we have that we haven't even thought about yet. Uh, you know, in, in the 30s, uh, workers came up with the ideas of sit-down strikes as a strategy, electing stewards to talk to you for you so you wouldn't be uh, fired, having master bargaining across companies so you didn't uh, compete with each other. And in the 2008 crisis, it was so deep. It was the deepest crisis since the 30s. But you, you couldn't point to new forms of working class organization being formed, like assemblies in a city, something. Uh, and we have to ask why and how do we facilitate that somehow? We can point to all these good formations and, you know, like Occupy and everything else, but they're limited. And so this question of a space where we can actually raise the bigger questions and psychologically support us 
because it's so easy, as you said, you go from one wave to another wave. And that's really demoralizing. Uh, there's no generational continuity in terms of well, what do we learn from the past concretely, from past organizers. So we need a, a party to do all those things. But we have to be careful that we're not just talking about an electoral party because, you know, you can get elected. And if you don't have a base to really do something, you're not going to accomplish much. You have to have a base so that the party is the culmination of something and then, you know, can take it further because of the resources it has. So I think those are the kind of big things that we can talk about. And, you know, and in terms of my impressions about, you know, looking around the world, um, you know, what you see is a lot of promising things. I mean, you see people recognizing that there's got to be more to life than what we've seen and that what we're facing is not only a dead end, but it's getting dangerous because if the right takes advantage of it and we don't, that gets pretty scary. Uh, but you are seeing that the right doesn't have answers, and that's creating a new opportunity I don't think we've had for a while on the left because it was the left that was disappointing, and then we we wore that. Um, you know, so there's those things. I, I had a, I mean, I, I'm speaking to socialists now when I say this. I spoke, right. in, I spoke in Oslo, and it was a very radical audience. It was people who were trying to defend what was still left of the welfare state, which in Norway, they probably still have more of it left than most countries. Um, it was trade unionists and movement activists and environmentalists. Uh, and what I found fascinating was that they were actually interested in talking about bigger things. The notion that bigger things are too intimidating for people. They like being treated as intellectual, you know, as having intellectual ideas. They wanted to hear big, big ideas. It didn't mean that they were going to run out and uh, do them. And somebody came after me up to me at the end and they said that was a great radical talk but you know it's not going to be absorbed by most of the people here it went over the heads of a lot of people here and i thought about that i thought about that you know should i actually have uh tried to tone it down should i have not raised the largest questions you just kind of encouraged them to push on and then he said to me but it was the right thing to do and I, I think that was an interesting point. I think what he was saying is that the role of socialists is to keep certain ideas alive, even if they don't seem to be ready to get on the agenda yet. We have to keep them alive. That's our role. And that as people go through struggles, some of the things that we might have said at one point in time might five years later suddenly hit them on the head. I got a call from a worker that 10 years ago we had done an educational in uh, with Ford and Chrysler workers in Windsor. And we talked about capital controls. And they all seemed to kind of agree. And he phoned me a decade later and he said, you know, I didn't really know what you were talking about then. I completely understand it now. And, you know, that's kind of the way change is going to happen. You know, there's going to be these battles and we're going to say, hey, these kids don't really know what they're doing. Well, maybe they do and maybe they don't. But if they keep struggling, there's going to be new questions that come up. And some of these socialist ideas will suddenly touch a nerve and mean something. So socialists are critical for that. And the other thing socialists are critical for is that there are exciting places that we, where we seem to be on the verge of winning, like with Corbyn. And I think that if Corbyn comes into office, there's going to be this excitement, and I think he's going to be able to deliver on some things like nationalizing rail and nationalizing water and utilities. But we're suddenly to discover that Boy, there's some big problems we don't know. You know, we don't even know how to nationalize finance if that's what we're going to do. We don't even know how to control it. 
It's not like taking over a bank anymore. It's so massive. And we're going to have the problem of a lot of workers are just looking for Corbyn to do things for them after they've been suffering through neoliberalism. Public sector workers were on a wage increase. And the trouble is if Corbyn can't deliver on some of those things, or if capital starts pulling out and workers start getting nervous and they pull Corbyn back, we're going to have a dangerous moment in terms of defeat. So there has to be this constant education about what we're about to face and what it's going to mean and how we have to think about it. And that kind of education, I have to say, I don't think is happening amongst the unions right now. A lot of the momentum mobilization is in communities, you know, without penetrating the unions. So, you know, I kind of feel mixed about this. I'm excited about a certain kind of politicization, a certain delegitimation of capitalism, which you can say people aren't as afraid of talking about socialism. But at the same time, without overwhelming people and intimidating them, we have to challenge them, you know, in terms of, well, what does this really mean? We can't just have slogans and get excited. Let's really, we can have those moments. I don't want to take them away from people. It's nice to be excited. But we also have to start having hard discussions. And I think that's critical. Right. Uh, something that comes to mind here is a term, uh, I wonder if I'm getting this right, but something to the effect of like uh, sympathetic opposition, right? It seems that we, we don't have enough of that. We have a lot yeah. of cheerleaders. Uh, yeah. We have a lot of people who are maybe even structurally in the position. They're, they're policymakers themselves. They're, they're staffers. They're in support roles, yeah. uh, various institutional leadership positions where, you know, they kind of have to be all rah, rah, sis, boom, bah, you know, half the time, you know, and, and keep their members um, enthusiastic and, and, and keep the morale high for this task that's ahead of them. Uh, and on the, on the other hand, you've got this sort of like group of sort of perennial poo-pooers, you know, the ones who just, ah, you know, nothing new under the sun here. This is all going to collapse. They're going to capitulate. This is all going to fail. It's all bourgeois reformism. It's doomed. You know, you really need to sort of thread that needle and you need to have somebody in between those two camps to be enthusiastic about the prospects, but also realistic and relentlessly critical about the realities that are going to be faced. And I think that's something that you're pointing to. I think what you're saying is critical. I mean, you know, we don't own a left that is sectarian and alienates people who are trying to do some decent things and that it's going to need. I mean, that would be a disaster. We don't want a left that is cheerleading and therefore never setting the stage for really, uh, you know, winning the battles that we're going to face. In some ways, this involves a division of labor. Right, right. Where, where we say that, look, if some people who aren't going to join a socialist project or a socialist organization want to do social democratic things uh we may not want to join those organizations but go for it i mean any of these struggles go for it but we want to be engaged with you we want to be talking to you and we want to be challenging you from a you know in a friendly way in a comradely way so it raises the question of what do people let's say take the states first because it's so critical what do democratic socialists for america do in terms of the problems that you've raised I mean, you're operating within a democratic party, which is not going to make a revolution or even significant social change. And that's a reality. Uh, you know, if, if the democratic, if the left in that organization is going to be successful, and there's a lot of space for it to make some successes because the democratic party is quite decentralized regionally. Um, if they're really successful, they're going to get their heads chopped off at some point. So what do you do? So some people would just say, well, let's not engage them. Let's stay outside of it. Now, that doesn't seem practical to me. It seems to me that a left that doesn't take the democratic socialists of America 
seriously is going to be completely marginalized. So you, you sorry, you mean the Democratic Party seriously? That doesn't take the Democratic Party seriously in terms of what the Democratic Socialists of America are trying to do by working in it. So I, I'm not I'm not I'm, I'm not saying that the left should be joining the Democratic Party, but sure. I'm I'm saying that they should have, have some respect for the the Democratic Socialists of America. That this is a space where people are trying to do something, and it's going to come up against the limits of doing it because you cannot do this in a democratic in the democratic party you'll eventually come up against the limits so it seems to me what this what the left should be doing both the left that's in the dsa and the left that's outside is trying to do some serious create spaces where they can have serious discussions about what are the strategic things we should really fight for how do we develop capacities because some of these things we can't win for a while. Uh, how do we prepare for the fact that at some point the democratic leadership is going to see us as undermining winning an election? I mean, this is going to be a real problem. Workers are all, you know, a lot of the unions ultimately are going to say, yeah, we like a lot of this left stuff, but if it's going to hurt us in defeating the Republicans, we really want to defeat the Republicans because they threaten our institutions. So we're going to have to have some people, you know, and this isn't going to have to be, you know, you know, the center issue, but some people who are really thinking about this and creating some capacity to debate these questions and, and build capacities and do education and have, you know, have summer schools of training cadre about organizing and about socialism and engage some of the people from the DSA in this, or even some people will go into the DSA and form groups in them to do this, but it shouldn't be on a sectarian basis where you're trying to take it over. It seems our role is to keep trying to figure out how do we get certain kinds of discussions going, certain kinds of capacities built, structures built like, you know, organizing schools and educationals everywhere uh, and getting, you know, unions to have much broader educationals than what's happening in bargaining. And, you know, and that's a real challenge. How do you how do you do that? You know, it's really a question of how do socialists behave in this moment in time? when we ourselves don't have a socialist party. You know, one of the things Sanders showed was that uh, if you really want to get on the national stage, you have to be in an election. That's when they pay attention to you. You have to be in the media. You have to even be tied to a a Democratic Party. Well, you know, a lot of us, you know, thought that, well, he's not going to go anywhere. He's trying to do this in the traditional way. And we were wrong in one way. We were wrong in the sense that he showed you could actually do a lot of mobilization and do a certain amount of education. We were right in the sense that there's a limit to doing this. It should be supported. That whole Sanders thing should have been supported. But the limit is that people after he lost didn't go back and actually in every city set up a committee of the thousand of people that were supporting Sanders and a permanent organization that could hire organizers. You know, one of the problems was that unions weren't ready to do this. And, you know, that's the kind of thing. Or, or people weren't thinking about well, what would happen if Sanders really got elected and he tried to do some of these things and we had a crisis. Was this just be the basis for saying, see, socialism's completely discredited? I just mean that, you know, we're right about the fact that the problem is bigger. We were wrong about the kind of dynamic that could actually happen, even in the United States. We just didn't think it could generate that much opposition. And now we have to figure out, well, how do we do deal with this? How do we learn the lessons of Sanders? How do we build on what Sanders showed was possible? And that doesn't seem to be happening. You know, there's this stuff in the DSA, but we should have had these, you know, Sanders committees 
after the election of all these people who are active and kept active. It should have been that kind of a building project. It shouldn't have been about whether Sanders gets elected or not, because even if he does, we don't have the strength to win a lot. Uh, it should have been, this was a process. This is how we, you know, how to think about it and how do we build on that process. Right. I think, you know, it would, it would require at least an episode and a half to really break this down. But the, the, the issue, as I see it, particularly in DSA on the American socialist left right now, is that the people who are interested in, in building certain kinds of capacities in their communities are not at all integrated with the larger electoral kind of mainstream political scene. Um, and the people who are in, in, integrated in the kind of electoral arena – Mm -hmm. uh, all of their time is consumed with that because Lord knows it's incredibly time consuming to get signatures and run campaigns and phone yeah. bank and all of that type of thing. I, I'm sure that if you talk to a lot of those people who mm -hmm. are wrapped up in the campaigns, that a lot of them would have said my intention was to do both. Right, exactly. That's, and that's they, the social democratic trap, isn't it? And then and they, you get sucked in. And we saw this with Syriza, and we saw it on the hard left as well. When, when we talked to, when Syriza was elected, it's suddenly a government. And when it's a government, it has to learn how to govern and cope with the bureaucracy. And the problem is that if you're not also simultaneously mobilizing outside the state, you're going to get creamed. And the left that was very critical of Syriza was in parliament being critical of him, but it wasn't actually out in the streets mobilizing people about what should you be asking from a friendly, friendly government? And that question wasn't resolved, and it still isn't. And it's one of the questions, you know, what you raised here is a critical question that we have to figure out because, yeah, people are going to get sucked into everything about whether it's winning an election or whether it's running the state. And we have to have some kind of division of labor in this process in, you know, whatever party we form, even if we had a socialist party who was doing this. Where we really understand that transforming the state involves doing things in the state that are different from what was done before. It's not about running the state more efficiently. It's about actually figuring out what capacities aren't there so we can transform it. And then that has to be supplemented or coordinated with doing things outside the state that keep pressure on the state to transform. And you know, when you right, look at, right. when you look at Venezuela, one of the things that didn't happen with Chavez was the transformation of the state. And part of the reason was he didn't have a party, so he didn't have cadre who had that kind of a larger perspective to bring in to the state to transform the state. So he depended on loyal army officers to come in and do things. And the other thing he did, which the left supported, I am saying the international left supported, is he began to do a parallel state because he wasn't changing the state. He began to set up parallel structures for education, health, farm, uh, dental care, etc. And at that moment in time, that was great. And it was exciting. And the Cubans came in. And there was all kinds of mobilization in the community. But you couldn't sustain it. You couldn't leave the state as it is, in the third world country especially, but anywhere, and then have this parallel state. There'd be a ch you know, question of what resources. Where are they going to go? You had a, you know, you, one was going to be defeated or the other was. And if you don't take on transforming the state, you become its captive. So, you know, but, but again, we have to keep asking these questions instead of attacking Tsipras. We can criticize them for mistakes, but we have to say these are real problems that the left hasn't quite figured out. 
or just saying, well, Shabbos died, and that was the problem. This was the problem when Shabbos was there. And, you know, there's a way that we have to talk about these international things that is serious. And being serious means we don't simplify them. So we can say, well, Shabbos disappointed us and Teresa disappointed us. So we're going to move on to the next good big thing. Maybe it's Corbin now. We have to take these seriously. These are part of our struggles. What do we learn from them? Uh, we have to respect them because only if you respect that it's hard. Does it force you to think about how to do it differently? Otherwise, you just say, we just need different people. Just get me in there and I'll be okay. That kind of talk. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I think one of the biggest problems in in, in the U.S. left is that those two groups that I spoke to, uh, it's not only the case that they're somewhat – that they're, they find themselves disconnected, but they don't see themselves as working together. Yeah. I'll say broadly, say people uh, on, on the certain wing of the DSA left um, or the left in DSA rather – People who see themselves as primarily sort of community organizers, they're, well, they're, they're, they fall prey to what I would consider to be this kind of a serious kind of localism. Yeah. And they're doing important work. It's work that needs to be done. Yeah. I want to I emphasize that. It's absolutely work that needs to be done. They're working on rent control. You know, they're, they're organizing ten, uh, tenants' rights groups, things like that. You know, not useless stuff. Very important work. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have people like an Our Revolution, this kind of uh, sort of would-be <laughs> – Bernie Sanders electoral organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem is the people in our revolution uh, certainly do not see themselves as getting socialists and progressives elected to provide space for the activists on the ground. Mm-hmm. And the activists on the ground, in most cases, unfortunately, in most cases, do not see themselves as building capacities for a larger electoral project in the institutions. It's not, a, it's not a connected, coherent, organic totality uh, that it would really need to be in a socialist party in order for that, that kind of push-pull, yin and yang dynamic yeah. to really be effective, that one-two punch, if you will, that you're kind of uh, pointing to. Yeah, there. no, I, I, think, I, think, I think you're putting it well because, I mean, you know, what socialists have to be emphasizing to people who are working on the ground, and I think there's a potential to do it is that you're doing wonderful, you know, as you said, you're doing wonderful work, but it's just not big enough. And if you're not changing some of the bigger structures, you're just going to be on a treadmill. And I think a lot of people working locally are beginning to understand that. That's why there was kind of an interest in Sanders. We need something bigger. And for the people who are saying, you know, we want to get elected and we're going to do these good things, uh, socialists would remind them that well, you're not going to be able to do this unless you really have a base outside of the state. That's not, that's not how to understand the state, a socialist state. That it, you know, there's some radicals who get elected and they can do all these good things. You're going to have to both think about the state in ways you may not have been thinking about, but also your relationship to things outside the state. And that's why this question of a party keeps coming up, because it's hard to get those messages across and unite people around, you know, even starting to come together, even being sensitive to that problem without spaces where you can discuss it. Without some institutional way of doing it, it just ends up depending on some individuals who kind of overlap both. And that's not good enough. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to really think about this. Can we form some kind of organizations, maybe in terms of these kinds of cadre schools that could be developed, where you're giving people technical skills in organizing and how to, uh, how to win people over, but also giving them, you know, some analysis about the limits of what they're going to face. And uh, I don't know if you can do this. Like, you know, if people are only interested in electoral stuff, 
will shy away from some of the analysis. Uh, but but it does seem to me that, you know, do, uh, trying to think about some institutional way of raising the question that you've just raised, how do we get these two wings together to have these discussions? Because I, I think what it means is, let me put it another way. It isn't just that we want them to get together. It's that there's something wrong with each of them. In other words, people always used to say we need to get the movements and the unions together, and that's going to be the basis of strength. Well, it wasn't, because if the movements weren't real movements, real mass movements with a real base that could do things, and if the unions weren't really organizations that could do things, you were adding up two things that didn't add up to much. Right, right. So what the point is, is that we need to change them both so that when we add them up, they really add up to something. And to, to change them both means you have to be asking these kinds of questions, that they both have to change, and then you can think about something larger. Such a big, big, broad project that you've outlined yeah. here. I really uh, appreciate this. I got to say, I came across your work uh, immediately after what I would consider uh, the failures of Occupy. I was very heavily involved in Occupy as an organized socialist in a socialist organization, and it was very dispiriting and demoralizing in many ways. But I came across your work at just the right moment, calling for a socialist party that would integrate these, uh, you know, various demands of of our project. And it's big, and it can seem overwhelming, but it has remained uh, since that time. You know, some six, seven odd years ago, it has remained a really important horizon to my to my thinking. And even when I'm sort of, in, you know, on this show in particular, here's, here's a nice little illustration for people how to think about this. Even on this show, you know, I might be doing uh, de- delving into the specificities of uh, a certain kind of electoral p- politics, arena of electoral politics, talking about committee positions in the U.S. House of Representatives. But, but in the back of my mind, it's, that's just one little puzzle piece in a much larger kind of agenda, a much larger comprehensive project that's going to need to fall into place at approximately the same time in order for that one little puzzle piece to be successful over here. Yeah. Let me just – can I just say something about Occupy? Sure, absolutely. Sure. Before sure. we go. Because, I mean, it's just a way of thinking about these things. You know, for everything you said about, okay, I've had all this experience, Leo and I have – been thinking about these things for decades and decades, doing research. But, you know, when something like Occupy comes along, uh, it surprises us. It wasn't something that I was calling for. You know, it wasn't something that I got. And, you know, it just shows the limits of, you know, how much we're still kind of learning and trying to grasp what's going on and also how things happen. Unexpected things happen. So when you look at something like Occupy, what struck me was that, you know, they showed that um, it was actually possible to talk about class, even in a crude, even if it was a crude way. You could actually talk about this, and it generated support. I was really fascinated by how workers reacted to Occupy. They thought this was great. Somebody was actually resisting all the shit. So, so they actually showed it was possible uh, to generate public sympathy to do something fairly radical by occupying a public space and to get and to speak a different language. Those two points were really important. And, you know, the left would have kind of been papooing doing that. On the other hand, it gets to the fact that, okay, there were limits. Now, the question is, what do we learn about those limits? Now, one of them was that if you really wanted this to go someplace, it would have meant that you actually 
started taking over things that were more important. It would have meant that unions take over government buildings, that unions take over the factories, uh, you know, factories that are closed. And so there's a lesson there that to sustain these kinds of things, you actually need unions because they have this organizational power. But then you have to think about, well, how do we change unions? Because if had unions gotten involved in Occupy, we would have had just a completely different world. That was the problem. Unions supported it. You know, unions in Toronto paid for the potties and, you know, gave them money and that. So, but they didn't mobilize their members to do something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that would have taken some kind of a left organization or something. I don't think unions would have figured this out even individually. It wasn't just that they were bad. It actually needed the existence of a left. And, and that has disappeared. When I came to the union, there was still a left. It had a presence. As a research person, I used to be forced to write documents, uh, which I had some freedom in writing fairly radically, because they were worried about the left would be coming to conventions, challenging them. When I left the union, going to conventions and conferences was a holiday. The union had no pressure on it. And when it didn't have any pressure on it, the leaders were worse. They needed that pressure. So, you know, so the Occupy thing, also carries those lessons. What would it have meant to take that initiative and make it into something larger? And then it kind of, when you raise those questions, it kind of pushes you into what you have to think about. Well, you have to think about class, you have to think about unions, and you have to think about politics in a, in a bigger way. And you have to recognize that there's going to be things that happen. You know, when you think about the making of the working class, if people have read E.P. Thompson and stuff, it doesn't get kind of get, it doesn't happen linearly there's things that happened that we don't even think really mattered and then later on they seem to have had an impact and i think that's how we have to keep thinking of the present uh that there's going to be things we don't we don't control but then the question always is well how do we build something out of it not by being an opportunist and trying to rush out in front of it by trying to help take it further what can we offer to take it that's as, that's as good as a way to end up as any. So uh, the project is big. You've outlined quite a lot here. I will put these articles under consideration in the show notes, both the piece that we've talked about here on making global capitalism. And as well, there's a piece that appeared in Canadian Dimension. It's called Working Class Internationalism Beyond Slogans. I'll make that available in the show notes as well. Sam Ginnon, thanks so much for joining us on Dead Pundit Society and come back again soon. Okay, thank you. I should have said one thing that I'm part of the socialist project and it does bullets, which I think our uh, people would really find interesting. They should just uh, look it up. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll put that on the show note in the show notes as well. I've been receiving Great. those uh, socialist project bullets for quite some time. Always very useful. Great. Okay. Thanks a lot, Adam. That was a great discussion. Oh, this new crazy mother.